0: This is In Conversation from Apple News Today. I'm Shamita Basu. Every weekend, we're taking you deeper into the best journalism on Apple News. In 2014, Tony Hathaway was arrested outside of a key bank in Seattle. The police and the FBI had been looking for him for months, Tony had robbed 30 banks in a single year, all within a 30-mile radius of his suburban home. And he made it look easy. Josh Dean first reported this story for Bloomberg Businessweek a few years ago.
1: I think we all have this Hollywood view of bank robberies where it's like a gang of people in elaborate Halloween masks who, like, stage this very choreographed robbery, you know, carrying machine guns, and they get into a vault. And that was not what Tony was doing.
0: Tony was not a professional criminal, at least not at first. He was a family man, a loving father to two kids, an engineer making six figures at the aerospace company Boeing. He worked on the 747 and traveled the world in business class. But after a serious back injury, Tony's family doctor prescribed him Oxycontin. And that's when his life started to fall apart.
1: I'm a heroin addict, and uh, I had to do something, you know, to not just feed my drug habit, to also help take care of my family. So for me, it was bank robberies was the easiest way to, to get money.
0: Tony's story may sound unbelievable, but at the core of it, his experience with addiction is a really common one. Here's Josh again.
1: It's the story that thousands, if not millions of Americans could tell about someone that they loved who got addicted to a pill and their life fell apart.
0: And it's the subject of a new podcast by Apple TV Plus called Hooked. Make sure to check out the first episode of Hooked in our podcast feed. It opens with the day of Tony's last heist. You won't want to miss it. Now, we don't want to give away everything you're going to hear on Hooked, But in my conversation with Josh, he explained why Tony decided to put so much on the line for what, at the end of the day, came out to not so much money.
1: I remember the very first story I read about him. Actually, the story that I found that led me to write to him in prison was that this man in the Seattle area had robbed 30 banks. And I thought, wow, that's an unbelievably high number of banks. That's got to be some sort of historic record. If not, he'd done it in 50 weeks. But his total haul was $76,000. Now, that is a lot of money on its own. But when you divide that by 30 robberies, you see that he's walking out with like 2500 bucks each time. And if you think about the mm-hmm. risk to himself, to others, that does not feel like a, a logical decision.
0: So why did Tony arrive at this idea to start robbing banks? Like, what was that going to solve for him?
1: Well, he was so desperate that... Robbing banks became to him almost a rational decision because at some point he lost his job, he lost his house, he was homeless and living with his son in a car, and felt like the only way to make money at that point was to commit a crime because he really was at that point living his life in four or six or eight hour increments, which is just about where you're getting your next fix. Oxycontin has progressed to heroin for him. And so then he has a new drug, which he needs to get more often. It's cheaper, but you need to buy it all the time. So he needs a reliable way to make money. And in in a moment of, I guess, desperation, just decided, like, what the hell? I'll try and rob a bank. And as you'll hear on the series, the first one does not go well at all and leads to a really terrible thing, which is that his son goes off to prison and then Tony's left alone feeling especially lost and nihilistic and like he has almost nothing to live for. However, still addicted. So he decides to go back to bank robbery and this time is fairly methodical and pragmatic about it. And because he'd been an engineer and I think is just one of those people who thinks a lot about how to solve problems, he turned out to be very good at it. Mm. And as he told me, you know, with some regret, but not entirely, like it became a challenge that he enjoyed.
0: So when you say that he sort of applied an engineer's mind to the problem of how to rob a bank successfully, what does that mean? Like, what what was the metho- methodology like?
1: In reality, the type of bank robbery that occurs most often is one person or two people running into a bank, often carrying a weapon or not, but it happens very quickly and there's almost no thought put into it. And most of those people, at least in the last decade, are opiate addicts and they're desperate for money. They pretty much get caught, if not immediately, then soon after, because they're not wearing a mask. It's just not thought out very well. So he starts thinking about what are the things that will get me caught? One is that they see my face. So he makes sure he's wearing some sort of face covering, but he's even very sort of DIY and pragmatic about how he chooses what that face covering is. He changes it a few times so that they don't think it's the same person robbing over and over again, which attracts more attention. He always wears gloves. And he he was not going to carry a weapon so that he could not commit violence even by accident. He spent a lot of time thinking about how long can I be in there? And he decided 45 seconds was the maximum. He parks his car in a specific location. So there are all these like small decisions that are made
0: mm.
1: to minimize the risk.
0: Well, tell us about what happened on the 30th, Attempted robbery. This is the one where Tony eventually gets caught. What are you I'm okay. How did he get caught? So
1: he was pretty much going nonstop one or two a week throughout the year 2013 into early 2014, making very few mistakes. But he admits now that he was probably getting more sloppier, was was not putting as much thought into it, was starting to make bad decisions. And one very bad decision that he makes is that he borrows his sister's minivan without telling her what he's borrowing it for and then robs a bank inside the grocery store where she works. Now, she wasn't on duty that day, but that decision, driving that very distinctive minivan is the clue that cops needed to identify this serial robber who had been plaguing Seattle for a year. Hmm. And he describes looking back on it as almost thankful that that happened because he thinks he probably would have ended up dead at some point, that his addiction was so bad and he was in such a dark place.
0: This is probably a good place for us to pause and explain how Tony's life got so dark, how it unraveled so quickly over the course of a year, It all started with a fall. Tony hurt his back and was prescribed Oxycontin. And at first, it made his life a lot better.
1: I mean, he used the term miracle drug. He had been plagued by that point for several years with back pain. And one day, he says, as soon as he started taking the Oxycontin, was able to go back to what felt like a more normal life, like get up and go to work without pain, get through the day without pain, be active again.
0: And when did he start to get the sense that maybe something was wrong?
1: by the time he was approaching a year because obviously he needed the drug to feel good. The pain was only absent when he was taking the Oxy. But that wasn't it. What happens is with opioids is that you get addicted very quickly. Your body becomes physically dependent. And also, as you take it for extended periods, the dosage needs to go up because your body gets adjusts to it, gets tolerant. So he goes from like 10 milligrams to 20 milligrams to 40 milligrams Mm. to 80, which is the maximum. And then it's like... 180 a day to 280 days to three, and then not even that is enough. And he certainly is aware that he's got problems because if for some reason his prescription runs out or he forgets to take one one day, it's not that just the back pain that comes back. That, that's not even an issue anymore. It's you start to feel this overwhelming sickness that, that addicts call dope sickness. And so hmm. he's aware of that within the first year, that, that he's fully out of control in the sense that he needs this medicine to feel normal.
0: What's the physicality and the psychology behind dope sickness? Like, What does that actually feel like? How did Tony describe that?
1: He describes it as the most miserable state he's ever been in. And I had that backed up by experts who say this is really the the insidious thing about opioid addiction is that I think a lot of us, and myself included, who have not been exposed to it personally, always assumed or at least partly assumed that it was it was about getting high and that's not mm-hmm. really what it's about with opioids you're avoiding this horrific sickness that feels like the sickest you've ever been I think he described it to me as like imagine the sickest you've ever been and it's worse than that because you're mm. you can't get out of bed fever chills, diarrhea, you're shaking, you're feeling like, you know, near death almost. And so because that state is so horrific and so traumatic, addicts will do anything to stay out of it. And that's what makes opioid addiction so difficult to get out of because you know that the only way to get out of it is you have to get through that state and you're gonna have to be in that state for some extended period while you work the tolerance and the, and the dependence out of your body. So It really makes a lot of sense when you understand that, that why people get so stuck in this pattern and can't get out.
0: Tony was so dope sick that at a certain point, Oxycontin was no longer cutting it. That's when his teenage son, Connor, introduced him to heroin. Here's how Connor describes the conversation with his dad in the podcast Hooked.
1: He comes to my room and says, what are you guys doing? I'm like, uh, smoking. (laughs) And he's like, what, is that Oxy? I was like... No, but yeah, pretty much. And he's like, Well, give me a hit of that, damn it. And I'm like, What? Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm like, But I just so you know, it's not, it's not oxy, it's, it's heroin. Tony describes using heroin immediately fixed him up and he never went back. And so if you boil it down, yes, it was his son who introduced him to heroin. He would have found it anyway. But the sad part of that, well, that's already sad. The additionally sad part of that is that then they began using together. And so their lives, began to fall apart as a collective unit.
0: You talked about how for Tony, his opioid addiction became a heroin addiction. And now, more recently, we're seeing the rise of synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Can you talk a bit about how we've seen the opioid crisis evolve over the past two or three decades?
1: Yeah, so experts who've been following this crisis that's, ravaged America, tend to think of the opioid crisis as three waves. I mean, this is an oversimplification, but I think it's a useful one. And the first wave is largely ascribed to the arrival of OxyContin. I mean, opioids were around, obviously, before OxyContin. But what they were is they were more diluted versions that were prescribed under more strict controls by doctors. Now, OxyContin arrives on the scene in the late 1990s. And not only is it potent, extremely potent, What's really different about it is the way it's marketed. So the the Purdue Pharma, its maker, trained all of its legions of salespeople to go out and convince doctors that this is a thing you can give to patients over extended periods. Only a tiny percentage of people get addicted, and it will change their lives. And yeah, it did change lives. Mm -hmm. People with chronic pain weren't in chronic pain anymore, but unfortunately, they turned into drug addicts. And so that's pretty much the state of the epidemic through the early 2000s, obviously some of those people discovered that heroin was cheaper and OxyContin is basically identical to heroin. So when addicts realized that the pills were getting expensive or their doctor cut them off or whatever, family members you know, said no more Oxy. That's why people started choosing heroin. In Tony's case, the second wave for him starts around 2010, which is when Purdue actually changed the formula making the pills impossible to snort or inject or smoke and that was a response to what they saw was happening was that people were abusing the medicine however also there's like a cynical side of that which is Purdue's patent was coming up so by reformulating oxycontin in 2010 purdue was able to renew its patent and continue to reap billions of dollars in profits a year so Mm. the opiate oxy epidemic becomes a heroin epidemic And then wave three, which we are in now, is the arrival of fentanyl, which is 50 to 100 times more potent.
0: Last year, Purdue Pharma pleaded guilty to federal criminal charges for misleading doctors and patients about how addictive OxyContin is. And as of two months ago, Purdue Pharma is now officially dissolved. A bankruptcy court judge approved a $4.5 billion settlement The Sackler family, which owns Purdue Pharma, will have to pay that amount. But other than that, the terms of the settlement clear the family and the company from further liability. The court ruled the money should go to addiction treatment and prevention programs. Josh spoke with Tony about all of this, and Tony says it's just not enough.
1: He's very passionate and, first of all, angry at... Purdue and and the Sacklers personally, I feel like, you know, is not apologizing for his crimes in the sense that he feels like being addict made him a bank robber. Like he's like, I did my time and I should have. However, I didn't choose to take this drug and become addicted. And that this is damage that was inflicted on this country by a company and a family. And why are they the only people who are not suffering here? I mean, he very much is disappointed by the settlement because the Sacklers will be rich forever. They're not personally suffering. They'll say they contributed $4 billion or whatever, but they have many billions left over. They're getting their names taken off museums, but they still have yachts. And I think Mm -hmm. he feels like a lot of things about the way that we handle opiates are, are still not quite right. He's pretty passionate about treatment. feels like we don't quite get treatment, right? That 30 days, which is a typical, Inpatient treatment is not a long enough treatment so that we need to think about how much time people need to get their lives back in order. Because he went to treatment, I think, two or three times and each time was buying pills literally on his drive home. And the only thing that got him clean was prison.
0: Josh, I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning of this interview that I haven't been able to stop thinking about. You mentioned that most people who rob banks today are people who are experiencing opioid addiction. Is that true?
1: Anecdotally, that has been told to me by police officers that that is true. I mean, I don't have an actual statistic about what percentage it is, but cops that I talked to about it said that in their experience, that's absolutely true. Wow! That this type of bank robbery where someone runs in and demands money quickly and runs out, usually without much thought, is almost always a drug addict. And over the last decade, it's opioid addicts. So Mm. now it's Well, now we're into the fentanyl era, but it was oxy and then it was heroin and now it's heroin and fentanyl. Mm -hmm. But yes, I mean, we've created an army of desperate, desperate people, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Now, not all those people go to the extreme that Tony went to, but a lot of them do. I think one thing I hope the series does is it takes people inside the life of someone who has lost everything and has only one impulse, and that's to feed his addiction.
0: What's Tony's life like today?
1: He's getting it back together. He's been clean now for, well, since he went to prison. His son, Connor, who people will get to know in the series, struggled quite a bit, even more than Tony, because he got out of prison, was on his own again, and got relapsed a few times. Also doing great. Uh, Yeah, they seem to be... They're doing great in the sense that no one's using... Everybody seems optimistic, but also Tony now has to figure out what to do with the rest of his life. I think he's a little wistful and nostalgic and sad that he doesn't have that Boeing life anymore and is now going to need to figure out what to do with himself.
0: You know, Tony's story is, of course, unusual in some ways. I mean, robbing robbing banks is particularly unusual, but the way in which he became addicted to opioids through his family doctor is such a familiar story in America today. What was it about Tony's story that made you want to tell it and made you think that maybe there was something that people hadn't heard before in his story?
1: I say in the first episode, it's an exceptional story. It's a story about a man who robbed 30 banks in one year. And and of course, you're going to want to hear how and why that happened. But it's also a very typical story. It's the story that thousands, if not millions of Americans could tell about someone that they loved who got addicted to a pill and their life fell apart. And I think we need to look at addiction as a disease and as a serious health problem and not as a moral failure. And I think we're not quite there yet. I hope the show is part of the conversation that changes that way of thinking about addiction, which is that, and I'm guilty of it myself, frankly, of thinking in the past that people who are addicted to drugs, certainly heroin, were like moral failures or were like people who could have made a decision not to be. And I don't think about it that way anymore. And I think Tony would like people to to recognize that. And I hope that by telling the story, we help people reframe their POV on addiction.
0: Josh, thank you so much for bringing us this story. I appreciate it.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: You can find Josh Dean's new podcast, Hooked, on Apple Podcasts. And you can read the article that started it all, which Josh reported for Bloomberg Business Week, by visiting our show notes page. And make sure to check out the first episode of Hooked in our podcast feed.